going to read to us now from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 24. Uh, if you happen to have a church Bible, that's on page 1188. Um, but if not, please turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 24. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, holding on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. I'm going to invite Morris up now to speak to us. Thank you so much, Alex. Hi, everyone. My name is Morris. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, now, uh, it's all, all confusing at the moment about church Bibles, but they are actually available, I think. Um, our overlords have decided that touching books won't pass coronavirus. So that's good to know. So if you'd like a Bible and you haven't got one, Jack is stewarding, is wandering around with a big pile. So just wave your hand in the air. He will bring you one to where you're sitting. That might help you follow along with what we're doing today in 1 Thessalonians 5, which I'll just tell you the page number. Um, let's head again. 1,188. It's a well-oiled machine here. Christchurch, Liverpool, 1,188. And we're going to be talking about uh, those verses in quite a lot of detail, so might just help you follow along. Great. Um, so you've caught us, if you're uh, new or visiting, welcome, lovely to see you. You've caught us at the end of a series where we've been looking just at one chapter of this letter, 1 Thessalonians, and looking at just a couple of verses at a time. And we're reaching the end of that series today in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. So um, that's what we're going to be looking at today. And uh, I'm going to be talking about that. But before we get to that, uh, just something I've been reflecting on, really, as we begin to think about this, which is the summer for me has been marked in the world that I live in, which is sort of like people who work for Christian organisations world by lots of news stories about high-profile Christian leaders having really bad things revealed about them in public. It's been quite depressing. Stretches from the highly dramatic, sort of very high-profile Christian figure who, after his death, it appeared, has just basically been leading a double life. But that's opened a whole conversation that's brought to the surface just day-to-day, -day, rude and belittling and horrible behaviour from powerful people in churches and Christian organisations to people they should be looking after. You know, not illegal things, but very un-Jesus-like things. And it's very depressing. Now, as someone who tries uh, to lead a church, um, I've been trying to 
analyse some of that and think, how does that happen that people start so well but end up behaving in such a terrible way? And as I've looked at these stories about these people, the one thing it seems to me they all have in common is an extremely exaggerated idea of their own importance. So the way that the story went is, well, the mission depends on me. Therefore, bad things about me cannot be revealed to anybody. So if you're threatening to reveal bad things about me, we must silence you at all costs because that will undermine the mission. Now, there's so many things wrong with that, like terrible abuse of power and everything else. But the real problem with it is this, thinking that I am the one who does God's work. That's the real problem there. It's like, oh, God couldn't possibly work if it wasn't for me. I think as a leader, it's easy to get delusional in that way, to think, oh, well, you know, it's my great talks that are changing everybody in the conversation, or it's our brilliant church structures that are building God's kingdom in the world. One of those leaders that famously sort of fell actually used to say to his church, our church is the hope of the world, which is quite a sort of strikingly incorrect thing to say. It's as if God doesn't exist. And we've been thinking about practical Christianity over these last few weeks. The problem with looking at all of these, this passage, which is just commands, is that we can all begin to make that same mistake. To begin to think the really important thing is that I behave in a certain way, that I pray constantly, that I rejoice all the time. And it's an easy but dangerous misstep to start beginning to think of yourself as very important, as if this has nothing to do with God's work. It's me being a good person and then reflecting well to the world. Now, it's interesting, as I've looked at these stories of big failures of people, it's interesting, they were basically, most of them, not doing any of the things that this passage describes. They weren't submitting to other people's leadership. They weren't receiving the insight of other Christians. They weren't forgiving people. But the problem beneath that was, this is all going well because I'm great. And that could be a problem for any Christian saying the really important thing is that I do a good job. And it is a weird way of living as a Christian life, isn't it? It's like, I'm doing this, so this is happening that's good. It's almost as if God doesn't exist. It's like practical atheism. We don't need him to do anything. What's really going on in 1 Thessalonians 5 is this. We're showing how God's changing work should be in our lives, submitting, forgiving, encouraging, receiving prophetic words, but as we see that laid out, what Paul makes clear in 23 and 24 is it's God who will actually change us to become like that. It's the first thing we see in this passage, trusting the God of peace. That should come up on the screen, I think. Um, trusting the God of peace. One of the things that um, I really like doing um, as a church leader is um, marriage preparation. I don't if some of you in church have been through that, so um, if you're thinking of getting married, you meet up with an older couple in the church, you've been married a bit longer, and you talk about some of the things that marriage might bring to life and how to obey God in marriage and all of this stuff. One of the things I always say to people in those sessions about marriage is this. Listen to me. All the really strange things about you, 
that you think you're keeping secret, all the weird things about you, all the bad things about you, all the things that up to now you've been able to keep private from everybody, this person sitting beside you is going to learn about those things. That is going to happen. If this is going to be a functional marriage, they kind of have to know about all of that stuff about you. So when you say in your marriage vows, all that I have I share with you, doesn't just mean your money. It means all the weirdness too. So if you're going to embark on that journey, you need to really, really trust this person. If you don't really trust that this person is for you, it'll be very hard to let them in to all of that stuff. That's one of the reasons why marriage itself was invented by God as a picture of his relationship with us, because it's the same with him. As we've walked through this practical Christianity series, or just in your Christian life, you will find him showing you places in your life that you need to be different. Things you thought were okay that were not okay. And maybe you are tempted to think, this is a whole can of worms that I don't want to open. It's easier to just sit here in church, let it all wash over me, then go out, have a coffee, have my lunch. No one here will know that you're finding that difficult. How could we know that? So easier just to ignore it. But look what Paul says. He says in verse 23, what I'm praying is that you'll be sanctified through and through, a phrase which means Every single little bit of you, even the weird and painful stuff you'd rather keep private, God wants in there too. But look who it is who's going to sanctify you. It is the God of peace. It is the God who can be totally trusted to be for you. I'm praying that it is him who washes you through and cleans out every bit of your life. Now, just remember, this is a joyful, enthusiastic church. The gospel rang out for them. This isn't one of those hinting prayers. I don't know whether you've ever been in a prayer meeting like that, where someone is pretending to pray, but really they're hinting. They're like, I really pray for Morris that he would learn to be patient and kind. I really pray he would be better at not being rude to people. No, it's not a prayer to God. It's a prayer, prayer to you. Looks like this could be one of those things, like Paul saying, I'm really praying God would sanctify you. That could, could be feel quite loaded, couldn't it? But all the way through this letter, he said they are being sanctified. He's really encouraged by them. And so he's just saying the experience of the Christian life, of God constantly getting sort of deeper and deeper into your life and changing you there, that's going to be like that, even for really going for it, Christians. And to do that, to be open to that, to welcome that, you have to know that the God who is knocking at that door you don't want to open is the God of peace we see in Jesus. He is the God who made peace with us by sending the son he loved to die in our place. It's that God who loved him, loved us and gave himself for us. It's a hard thing to welcome God, to wash through, to sanctify, to change the innermost secret and messed up bits of your life. And maybe your question is like, can he really be trusted in there? Well, do you believe what Jesus says about him and shows us about him, that he is the God who is for us and wants to bring us peace 
at his own cost. Only he really can open us up with that step of peace towards us, so we'll let him into those places. My words can't do that, standing here today. It's God, if you let him in, who can change you. Now, that might all sound a bit vague. You know, let God sanctify you. What, what does that mean? <laughs> How do you let God do that? Well, let me talk you through. Probably an experience that you've been in a Christian any length of time, you probably know. Maybe something you've read today or you've heard talked about in this series or just something you've read in the Bible or, or a prophetic insight a Christian friend has given to you. You felt challenged by something someone said. You know, you've thought, I am impatient with people who need help, or I do react by not forgiving, but trying to punish people I don't like, or I never rejoice, or whatever it is. Well, may the God of peace sanctify you through and through. The beginning is to privately, with the Lord, think and dwell on and worship him for the peace that he has brought between you and him through Jesus. He loves you. He accepts you. None of this is surprising to him. And then in that context, in that space, talk to him about this thing you get wrong or find difficult, this command you're ignoring. Ask him to change you. And actually what you'll find as you live as a Christian is we're all just walking that path all the time, seeing where we need help, not fearing failure because we're at peace with God, and so inviting God further and further into the deepest, most broken bits of ourselves where we feel the most shame, that is walking with God, always inviting, asking, knowing. But we're at peace with him, so it's safe to do that. I'm saying to you, you need to invite God, but do you see in the passage, Paul actually put, even more strongly puts the ball in God's court. He just says, may God do it doesn't even say to them you be open to God doing it he just says I'm praying God will do it God does it without us being good enough to even invite him to do it the Lord loving us and us knowing that gets right into the most private broken places so I want to echo this wonderful prayer, and so should we. May the God of peace, the God whose nature and joy it is to bring peace between us and him, may he sanctify us through and through. May he take the sort of mild feeling of challenge and turn it into cleansing change. May he take my shyness about owning my faults and turn it into joyful, happy repentance where there's nothing to lose by owning up because the God of peace can be trusted to do that gently, rightly, well. Trusting the God of peace. Well, here's the next thing we see and the next two are much more brief than that. Um, should come up on the screen. Letting God in everywhere. In this series, we've done lots of people have pointed out that Christianity for Paul is never practical unless it is aimed at or has in mind the return of Jesus. That is the Christian idea that history is going somewhere. It's going to Jesus coming back, judging the world and making everything right. And it's as we aim for that day that we will be able to live differently. 
Uh, He actually says, the whole Christian life is like staying awake for that day. That picture speaks to me because I do love sleeping. So the idea of staying awake is a good prompt for me. Lots of my life, I am just sort of sleepwalking through the world without thinking about where everything is ultimately going. We don't just potter along as Christians. We evaluate our lives in that day that Jesus is coming. But to be clear, Paul's saying we're not scared of that day. Sometimes, I think a lot of Christians actually think of the return of Jesus as like when my mum used to say, wait till your dad gets home. When my mum said that, that wasn't like, wait till your dad gets home, he's got some sweets. You know, that wasn't the tone. It was like, wait till your dad gets home and there'll be trouble. And I think some of us think about the return of Jesus that way. It's like, oh gosh, look busy, Jesus is coming or we'll be in trouble. It's not the way the Bible talks about it. It's much more like the hope of a liberator. To talk about something we've probably all seen this week, our TV screens are filled with the horrendous mess Western governments have left in Afghanistan and the untold human suffering going on there. And people want to get out. Why do they want to get out? Because they've understood now, cruelly, that no one is coming to liberate them. People promised that, but are not going to follow through. So what's your only option? To leave. But what if you knew a liberator was coming? Well, then you can resist. If you know in the end your enemy will be defeated, this evil power will be defeated, then you can resist. Totally unfair to expect people resist if they think liberation is never coming. As a political aside, therefore, it would be right to help people escaping that as much as we can, seeing it's a mess of our government's making. But if you knew liberation was coming, you could resist oppression. You could submit more to the rule that you know is coming than the rule you're under now. And that's what Paul is saying for all Christians in this broken creation we live in. One day, though it may be hard to believe, Jesus is returning to raise up people who know him to mend this broken world. If that day is coming, if liberation is coming, how do we live now? We resist. Not him, but this world we live in. We don't ignore it when God says something matters because liberation is coming. So something that looks quite normal in this passage, encourage the weak people. That isn't just a nice thing to do. I mean, it is a nice thing to do, encourage, help someone who's weak. But it's stronger than that. It's actual resistance to this world we live in now, isn't it? This world we live in now says to us, you know, do what's right for you. You know, um, something came up on my Twitter feed this week that I was like, unfollow where someone was tweeting a little sort of meme saying, if people are draining in your life, just get rid of them. The call of the Gospels, the opposite of that, isn't it? It's to resist that. It's to say, if someone's draining, help them. Now, that's not just nice. I mean, it is nice. (laughs) It's resisting this world and living for the liberator who's to come, who always helps weak people. We're rejoicing always, not just because we want to feel happier, but because a better rule is coming that we hope for. And Paul's prayer here in verse 23 is that that coming rule will reform every bit of our lives. You're not going to be totally ready for Jesus to return until he returns and completes the work. But if the liberator is coming, you want his liberating rule to be in as much of your life before he comes 
because you know he's coming. You can resist oppression because liberation is on the way. And um, Paul says, may your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless. It's interesting reading books about this passage. A lot of ink spilt on what's the difference between spirit and soul. Um, If you want to discuss that, feel free to do it afterwards, but I will be busy doing something else. Uh, All he's saying by saying that is, may all of you, you he's not starting a debate about what's the difference between a spirit and a soul, he's just saying, may every part of your life be ready for when Jesus returns. Everything you do and you think and you feel and you care about be formed by that great day. And that's what I'm praying for you. That type of change seeping all the way through all of your life. And again, he's praying it. Me calling you to do this can't move you on that journey. May God do it. May God do it for this church. May he change this group of people so every single bit of our life is reformed towards the new rule, liberating rule, that is coming. If you've been a Christian any length of time, and some people have and some people haven't, so if you're new to Christianity, you should just ask other people about here. I'm just giving you permission now. Ask any Christian about this. They'll be delighted. You will know this experience that you have God in your life gently but really getting you ready for the king that is to come. Someone's praying this prayer for you and you're experiencing it. You'll have had that experience where you think, oh, I'm really challenged and God's helping me to change in this area. And so you pray about that and other Christians help you and you get people to pray for you. And you think, oh, I'm really beginning to make progress. That feels good. And then suddenly this whole other area opens up you never even thought of where you need to learn to honour God and get ready for Jesus to return. And you think about that. It's like God slowly spreading out through your soul and spirit and body. And maybe you feel like, oh, I'm not really sure that's happening to me. Well, before you get too depressed, ask some Christians around you whether they think that's happening to you. Often we can't notice what God's doing, but other people will spot it better. I was discussing this recently with a good Christian friend. And they said, the problem here is, though, is this just like finding out again and again and again that you're a sucky person? You know, you think, I'm really making progress there. And then you discover in this area, no, I still suck. Well, you can view it that way if you choose to. Slightly negative way of viewing it. Here's a better way, I think, to view it that Paul would encourage us. He was saying, listen, the God who is at peace with you already through Jesus is walking through your life day to day, taking every broken and hardened and twisted bit of you, every action and thought and passion that's messed up, And through your life, as people pray this for you, he's purifying, setting apart, getting ready for Jesus' rule. May God do it. Well, actually, Paul finishes by saying, verse 24, God will do it. It's the last thing we see. God being God. Sometimes I feel so weighed down by the unlikeliness of me becoming totally sanctified It just seems like too big a job, and I'm so slow to join in with the things that would help. I actually like gripping on to the things that are bad, 
And I prefer the world where I don't think about, you know, this passage warning lazy people praying in all circumstances, rejoicing all the time. Just easier to grip onto my old life. I wonder if God will get tired of it. Now, I know that's theologically incorrect because the Bible says God doesn't get tired. But I sort of feel like, why would he still persist with me? Why would he do that? I am so annoying. But it's interesting, verse 24 says God will persist. And the two reasons are nothing to do with me. They're to do with him. He will persist because of things about him which don't change. Do you see? It says the one who calls you is faithful. I'm a Christian because God did something, not because I was some way, because God called me. And that's very humbling. It means I'm not qualified except by him. But it does mean him going on with me isn't really dependent on how committed I am to him. It's based on his character. And he's the one who called me is faithful. That is, he always does what he says he'll do. I'm very bad at doing what I say I'll do, but he is like that. Maybe you think about, oh, yes, I'm really reminded about I heard that thing a few weeks ago and I just forgot about it and I closed my Bible and I was impatient and I never prayed. I was totally faithless. But he is faithful and he will do it. He's committed to doing this because of him, not because of me. There are people, and you probably know some, who seem to profess faith in Jesus and then seem to give up. And I was pondering this verse as I thought about people like that in my life. Now, I guess there are people who seem to profess faith and then go right the way through their lives, still rejecting their faith later. That's mysterious to me. As I get older, as I am, it seems much more common to me that much later, more quietly, perhaps in a moment of crisis, they almost can't stop themselves coming back. I hope it's true for the people in my life. Someone was telling me recently, someone in our church who's in their sort of 50s, about a friend from university who was in a Christian group with them and then at the end of university abandoned their faith. And 30 years later, they're still in touch. He's beginning to explore trusting God again. 30 years. My friend was sort of saying, I'd kind of written him off. Everything about his life had become anti-God. And it's interesting, the guy who's coming back is now saying, those years were terrible that I ignored God. I shouldn't have done it, but God did actually use them. So I'm able to humbly accept what he's saying now in the way I couldn't when I was 22. He's faithful. He will do it. So as we think about practical Christianity, we reflect more on how we should be, how we can do, how we can change It is possible to miss the point, which is that we should really reflect on the God who calls and is faithful and then invite him to do what he does, rinse us through in every area of life. Coming back to where we started, 
as all those failed Christian leaders demonstrate, it's not actually getting things wrong that's dangerous. It's arrogance that's dangerous, thinking if I'm better, I will save the world. That's a a recipe to pretend to be better than you are. Surely the way we keep going is if we constantly, really in our hearts, think the way Paul thinks of, may God do it. It's him, not me. In a moment, for those of us who are here in the room, we're going to share communion together. We're going to eat bread and drink wine, which is where we reflect on what God has done to make peace with us and participate that and accept it in the way that Jesus has reminded us to. But maybe in the quiet of this time, as we really think about God bringing peace with us, maybe you also want to reflect on where he's coming close to you to sanctify. Where is he nudging, pushing, opening up somewhere that you've been keeping closed? Where can that act of bringing peace that Jesus did for us on the cross call you to let him in? Because the one who called you is faithful and he will do it. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the one who works in us. For those of us who are Christians today, we're so grateful that you called us. May you, the God of peace, sanctify us through and through. That in some senses is a frightening prayer. And yet we trust you because you're at peace with us. And where we need to grow in faith in you so we open up our lives to be sanctified. We pray you'll do that in us too.